0: Good morning, Blacknall ladies, or evening or afternoon, whatever time of day it might be for you. I'm so glad that we're studying the book of Psalms together, and the Lord has such wonderful things in store for us. I'll be helping us with our reflection on Psalm 2. I'm Carmen Garrigan, and I'm excited to study this psalm with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come together to study your word, We ask that you would release a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know you better. We pray that you would give us living understanding and that you would mark our hearts to follow you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we think through the use of Psalms in our church year or the rhythm of our lives, Psalm 2 is not one that comes to mind. Psalm 23 is always one that we think of during a time of trial or when we're planning a funeral. We might think of Psalm 118 when it's Palm Sunday or Psalm 51 during Lent. We may go to Psalm 121 when we're saying goodbye and sending someone away to a new ministry. Or perhaps we recite Psalm 100 on Thanksgiving. So what occasion would draw us to Psalm 2? I'd like to offer Psalm 2 as your place to turn whenever you are feeling discouraged about national or global politics. So it might even become daily reading during this election season. Psalm 2 concludes the introduction to the book of Psalms, or sometimes we say Psalter. Psalm 1 focused on how the individual can thrive in the midst of wickedness And Psalm 2 emphasizes the same themes, but on a global level. Jesus' leadership is both for the individual and for the nations of the earth. Psalm 2 also had a very specific role in the life of Israel. It was used whenever a king was being installed in the Davidic monarchy. We may think that since we don't crown kings for our national leaders anymore, or at least in our country, that Psalm 2 is just an interesting piece of Israel's history. While Psalm 2 did have a very specific function in the life of Israel's kings, its far-reaching themes are very important for us today as well. It is also one of the most widely quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted in the Gospels, in the Book of Acts, Hebrews, and Revelation. Psalm 2 is essential as the early church apostles seek to communicate who Jesus is and what he came to do. So let's take a look at each section of the psalm. Let's start with verses 1 through 3. They ask a rhetorical question. Why do the nations of the earth and their rulers conspire in vain? While the blessed man in Psalm 1 meditates on the law of the Lord and bears fruit, The nations and the people who throw off the ways of the Lord that are mentioned in Psalm 2, they plot in vain. It's the same Hebrew word used for both meditate and plot. One bears fruit. The other's efforts are ultimately futile. In their original context, these verses likely described Absalom's rebellion against Solomon's succession of their father David on the throne. They also depicted how in general, the other nations responded to the Davidic monarchy the Lord had established. They paid no attention and they even rose up against it. When Jesus was rejected by the leaders of his day, that too was the fulfillment of these verses as described in Acts 4. And the fulfillment of these verses continues today. We still see nations conspiring in vain and leaders rebelling against the authority of Jesus. God's law and Jesus' leadership is described in our psalm as a yoke, like the yoke that was placed on oxen to plow a field together and correctly. Jesus described his yoke as easy and that it would be the fruitful way of life. And yet to many, they see this yoke as an antiquated restraint and a barrier to progress, something to be broken and thrown off. Rare is a political leader who gladly submits to God's word and Jesus' leadership. And this is precisely the scene that the Psalm describes. Political leaders who seek their own glory and schemes without any thought to God's plans for the nations. The next section of verses four through six describe the Lord's response, he laughs. The Lord sees these rulers and nations much like a parent whose toddler refuses to leave the playground for a nap. The mother simply scoops him up, puts him in the car, and they go home for a nap anyway. So it is from God's perspective, and even even easier. We might be frustrated by our toddler's rebellion or even get a bruise as he kicks us, but God is not moved in fact, the Lord takes the necessary global action for all leaders to come to the same conclusion. They are not in control, nor are they sovereign. Only the triune God can rightfully claim that role in history. Politically, Political leaders across the globe may think that they are serving their own agendas, but ultimately God's plan is the only plan that will succeed. His choice of his son, the Messiah, to rule the nations, is the decree that will never be shaken. And this decree is the next theme in verses 7 through 9. The father speaks this decree to his son. At first, this was an expression of the covenant or promise that God made to King David. David wanted to be the one to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord told David that this task of building the temple would be his son's job. But in sharing this news with David, the Lord gave David an amazing promise in 1 Samuel 7. The Lord told David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The Lord also promised to be a father to David's son. And this was true in a variety of ways. The Lord offered the same intimate relationship to Solomon as the Lord had with his father, David. Then this was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He was physically descended from David through his parents' genealogy. Gospel writer Matthew establishes this lineage in his opening chapter. And Jesus' Heavenly Father confirms Jesus' identity as his beloved son, both during Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. The revelation of Jesus as the messianic son of David and as the son of God is given to Mary when the angel Gabriel speaks to her of the coming pregnancy in Luke chapter one. The kingdom the father gives to the son is significant. While the extent of Solomon's reign was quite vast, the one that is offered to Jesus as his inheritance includes every nation on earth. And this is no hyperbole. This is, in fact, our hope as the redeemed of the Lord, that the glory of the Lord would fill the whole globe. This earth, which has been fragmented into various nations and language groups since the rebellion at Babel and continues in great rebellion to this day, will be at the conclusion of history brought under the glorious rule of Jesus, the Lord's anointed one. The nations are Jesus' inheritance. They are the reward of his suffering. And while this conversation might seem like one just for the Trinity, Jesus brings us into this global project of redemption. Just before his ascension back into heaven, Jesus has this commission for his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Verse 9 of Psalm 2 shows again that Jesus' leadership is not readily accepted. While the nations have been given an invitation to discipleship and a call to submit to Jesus' leadership, through Jesus sent ones. Not all respond to this invitation with wisdom. This rebellion will not endure forever. Psalm 2 introduces the iron scepter of the anointed one. The book of Revelation refers to Jesus' iron scepter three times. This all comes to its final conclusion as Jesus defeats all who have opposed his kingdom. In Revelation 19, The Apostle John describes this scene. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. This is indeed a solemn scene as Jesus silences the rebellion on earth. And so it is far better for the leaders of the earth to heed the warning of these final verses of Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Be wise, serve the Lord, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son. These are all invitations and imperatives to submit to Jesus and his leadership in this hour of human history. He is the chosen son of God who has been given authority over every nation. We, as his redeemed, are his witnesses to the nations and to the leaders of the earth. Considering the prophet Samuel's response to God's choice of king helps us as we respond to God's choice of king and invite others to also respond to Jesus' kingship. The kings of Israel were identified with a flask of anointing oil and with a kiss. The oil signified the Lord's choosing, and the kiss the prophet's submission and dedication to God's choice of leadership. 1 Samuel 10.1 depicts the anointing of Israel's first king, King Saul. It says, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Then Saul became king, but as we know, eventually Saul's heart departed from the Lord and a new king was chosen. When Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king, everyone was surprised by God's choice of David. He was not the obvious leader at that time. He was not the robust eldest son, but rather the youngest, the forgotten, and the uninvited one, who was out tending sheep when this momentous occasion was happening in his family's home. Still, God's plan would not be thwarted. Samuel listened to the Lord until God confirmed the one he had chosen, David. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. For many in our world, bowing to Jesus' kingship and submitting to his mantle of leadership is not an obvious choice. Jesus does not offer what the world offers. Jesus is meek, humble, and he chooses to serve others with his whole life. Jesus does not grab at power and wealth that leads to exploitation of others. He waits on his father's timing. He will be exalted, but first he was humiliated on the cross to pay for our sins. Our world most often sees leadership as an exercise in self-gratification or self-promotion. And so Jesus' kingship is seen as irrelevant in the modern world. But something is amazing happened through Jesus' submission and humility. Two days before his crucifixion, Jesus was anointed. Jesus was not anointed by a prophet of great renown, but by a woman whose life Jesus had radically changed. She broke a very expensive alabaster jar of oil over the head of Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, she recognized who Jesus was and that he was worthy of such an honor and of such extravagance. When the others around her were indignant about the expense of what she had done, Jesus said that it was done to prepare him for his burial. And it was in his submission to death that Jesus became king. Those who crucified him mocked him as king of the Jews, not realizing the truth they told. It was through Christ's death, that death was undone for all time, and he was made worthy to rule the nations in love and righteousness. In the book of Acts, the early church lived out this reality of Jesus' leadership in a hostile world. They interpreted their situation through the lens of Psalm 2. In Acts 4, John and Peter had been thrown in jail, because of this disruption that came when the lame man who was begging was healed in Jesus' name. So they're brought before the religious authorities and commanded not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus. Of course, John and Peter agreed to no such thing, and ultimately they are released from prison. Acts 4 reports that on their release, John and Peter went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And here comes a quote from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. There are many who lead the nations of our day who would also like to silence those speaking in Jesus' name. But Psalm 2 pleads with such leaders. Now is the time to recognize Jesus' leadership. Align yourself with him. Wise leadership begins with fearing God, and rejoicing in his king. And so in this time when we grapple with leadership of our nation and the leadership we see happening in the world, I'd like to give us some encouragement on how this Psalm can give us confidence in this election season and in all times of governmental turmoil. Psalm two insists on the universal significance of the sonship and kingship of Jesus the Messiah for human history. There may be hostility to Jesus and his ways now, but that will not last forever. We can still participate in the political process, and we are called to pray for all those in authority that they would submit to the leadership of Jesus. But this psalm also helps put our own government in the bigger context of human history. The Father will set his king on his holy hill, no matter how our elections turn out. We need not despair. In this era where we are skeptical of our political leaders' motives, it's so encouraging to look at Jesus' worthiness to rule. We often say and sing that Jesus is worthy, but what does that mean when Jesus, that Jesus is worthy when it comes to ruling the earth as king at the conclusion of human history? Revelation 5 offers us some insight. As we have a glimpse into the throne room of God and Jesus receiving his inheritance of the nations, Jesus is worthy to be the supreme leader or king of the earth because, first of all, Jesus deserves it. He has proven himself worthy or deserving of the authority to be king of the earth because he has made every choice in love and righteousness. He always has lived in submission to the Father's will, and he never gave in to the temptation of sin. We trust his leadership to open the scroll of judgment and to rule all the earth's resources. Second, Jesus is capable. He is able to open the seals and to administrate God's judgments to drive evil off the planet and to reorganize and lead all of its governments. No other man has the wisdom, humility, and power or resources to do this. It's not amazing that God rules the earth, but that he gave all the authority over it to one man, Christ Jesus, who is capable of giving leadership over all the resources of the nations, and in a way that sustains love and righteousness forever. And third, Jesus is worth it. We agree that he is worthy to rule the earth forever and is worthy of our unqualified trust in his leadership and our sacrificial obedience to his will. Jesus does not lead with disinterest or a lack of involvement. He set aside the glory that was rightfully his to take on our human flesh forever and to live a perfect life that submitted unto death. Jesus gave his all for us. He is worth our yes and our submission. The devil seeks to stir up self-pity in us by telling us that we are getting a bad deal from God and that it's no longer worth the trouble to seek God with diligence. The devil tempts us to give up seeking God and to give in to sin because it's just too hard or we have to wait too long for all of Jesus' promises to unfold but we can say no to such temptations. Jesus is our worthy king in every way. In our modern day, we struggle to trust our political leaders' decision-making process. Imagine one day when Jesus will rule the nations in righteousness, and we will have no doubts or mistrust in his management. What peace and joy. We can be his bold followers Now, as Peter and John were, that we can pray, Lord, we know we live in the midst of a wicked generation, but Lord, fill your servants with boldness, Lord, that we would speak healing in your name. And so thankfully, our confidence as God's people does not rest in the aspirations of our current political leaders, whether they be noble or despicable in our sight. Our confidence is that our God's kingdom can never be thwarted, He is the one enthroned in heaven, and in his perfect time, that kingdom shall be manifest on earth as well. Revelation 11 shows us the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen.